Happy day, everybody. Hope you're having a wonderful day. I'm sitting here enjoying my wonderful, warm, intelligence coffee, and I hope you're having a great day yourself. Today's podcast is going to dive deep into performance psychology, how we can really start to understand how to get the most out of our mind and start to create a context or a blueprint, if you will, to start to really allow our brain to work with us rather than against us. Today's guest, Brett McCabe, is a psychologist from the University of Alabama. He gets to work with some of the best athletes in the entire world, whether it be the football teams, which is a highly successful team, or a lot of the other teams, and really help them get out of their own way, as it often seems. You have high-performing athletes who sometimes live up to their potential, and oftentimes it's the high-performing athletes who hold themselves to a high standard and oftentimes will give themselves a hard time. He's got a great framework around what things you should be doing on a day-to-day basis. He's also given us a really interesting perspective as to the school that he's created for people out there like you and me who ultimately want to help other people. So his school called the Catalyst School focuses on teaching you his methodology on getting the most out of yourself, getting the most out of your clients. I think you guys are going to love this conversation. Brett's got some very unique views, some very powerful views, and he's a very articulate, bright human being. It's so grateful to have had the time to sit down with Brett. Today's podcast is brought to you guys by Bubs MCT and Collagen at its absolute finest. As I sit here enjoying my intelligence coffee with two scoops of Bubs MCT, one scoops of Bubs Collagen, and about three grams of lion's mane, and about 600 to 1,000 milligrams of alpha GPC. It absolutely turns my brain on. Apparently, it doesn't help me gather my words or use my words correctly, but maybe we'll find something else for that. But it definitely does wake me up, gives me energy to train every day, gives me energy and abundance for everything I need to do that day. You guys can use the code intelligence for 20% off at bubsnaturals.com. And I'm going to spell intelligence for you because it's been suggested to me that not everyone spells it correctly. It's I-N-T-E-L-L-I-G-E. N-C-E. So some people have been suggesting that they spell it with an E uh, instead of an I, but there is definitely two I's in intelligence and it looks like three E's. So hopefully you guys are spelling that right and 20% off. So you understand in this day and age in the supplement world, 20% off is extremely high, extremely generous because these guys aren't working on a tremendous profit margin on top of the fact that they're also contributing a whopping 20% of their sales directly to charity, which is just incredible. So uh, thank you so much to Bubs for making the show possible. Thank you so much to Bubs for having an incredible product. And I've had huge numbers of people who have messaged me saying thank you for this. And you guys know I keep integrity to the things that I use because there's very few number of products I actually use. But when I do, do use it, I do want to tell you guys about it because I really think it's superior. And I know you care about what goes into your body just as much as I do. So take care of your body, take care of each other, ground yourself in gratitude. And a little tip for you guys, it's been brought to my attention lately with this mentor group I'm working with that a lot of people focus their gratitude on what they're already grateful for. It's very easy to wake up and go, I'm grateful to be alive. I'm grateful for the sun. I'm grateful for the for the air. I'm grateful for the water. I'm grateful for where I live. I'm grateful for these wonderful people in my life. What it's hard to be grateful for, perhaps, is the things that you're not grateful for, the things in your life that maybe you're a little bit angry toward, a little resentful toward, maybe you're a little anxious about something. 
What is it about those things that you can be grateful for? How can you learn to train your brains to rather than seeing the obstacle or the problem, you can start seeing it as an opportunity or maybe something that's made you better in your life. So I encourage you this week, rather than just doing your typical gratitude practice of being thankful for the amazing things in your life, continue doing that. Add an additional practice that allows you to be grateful for the things that are maybe a little harder to be grateful for, those things that really made you stretch as a person, those things that brought you a lot of fear, anxiety, and maybe things from the past or people from the past that you think have in some way slighted you. But realize if, if something in your past was challenging for you or it was didn't meet your expectations, maybe it's exactly what you needed in that exact moment to become a better version of yourself. It made you grow, it made you stretch, it made your comfort zone expand. I encourage you to bring that into your gratitude practice this week and forever, and hope you guys enjoy the show. Don't forget to head over to bubsnaturals.com and use the code intelligence for 20% off because you're gonna love these products and this discount code will not last forever. Welcome to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast, Dr. Brett McCabe. Thank you for joining me today to talk about how we can optimize our minds, whether it be athletics or life in general. How are you today, sir? Man, I'm good. Thanks for having me. This is uh, always fun to talk about a way we can improve. Yeah. So my market is very much people looking to live their greatest life in the body they love. It's a lot of pro athletes. I personally work with some pro athletes and uh, getting to the bottom of how the brain works and how we can optimize this thing we carry on our shoulders seems to be the gateway to many, many uh, opportunities, right? Whether it be in athletics and and, uh, and beyond. So gosh, I'd love to tell you, love for you to tell us how you got started into this industry. You said you're a ball player and how'd that turn about? Yeah, so I was a I was a baseball player in college. I went to LSU. LSU is a historic, you know, national powerhouse when it comes to college baseball. A lot of players in Major League Baseball. I was fortunate enough to be on the early side. So the first two, you know, national championship team was on. Oh wow. Five that happened in ten years. So it was this dynasty period. It was what you've seen across a lot of, you know, great sporting dynamics of a lot of really good formulas together. But I was always on the outside. I was a late bloomer. I was a kid who grew really, really late. I had an opportunity to go to LSU. Coach gave me that opportunity. If I paid my dues, spent my time, you know, was very, very patient. But as a 17-year-old, when I went to college, who grew his my 17th year. I mean, I, I didn't grow before then. I'm six foot five. And I was probably six foot tall in my senior year in high school. So I kind of grew late. I matured very late. So I went to LSU and kind of sat on the bench for a couple of years. When I got really, really good, was kind of the plan, you know, when I was turning about 19, I got injured and I struggled with some, some psychological adjustment issues to the injury. And that was actually the first summer that I really got into like training and, and strength training and, and really embraced it. And I had a lot of success. The problem was I had a shoulder injury and as a pitcher, that's, that's just not a good thing. And I struggled psychologically with it. I just couldn't get over the pain, the struggles. I couldn't get over the fact that everything was so close. It just got ripped away from me. And I went into that season. We did well. We won the national title again that year. And I went from being a guy that was supposed to be a really big contributor to a dude that was just sitting on the sidelines again. And I decided to come back for one more year. And it was going terrible. The preseason training was going terrible. I didn't enjoy working out the same. I didn't enjoy training the same. I just wanted to get through the days. And then right before the season started, my parents sent me to a guy that kind of helped me focus on what I needed to focus on. And one of the problems was I usually did everything right, but I just didn't have success. And that's exhausting. 
you know, you see other guys who are screwing off or not paying attention and there they are having great success. And for me, I'm doing the, you know, I'm, I'm not having any success and I'm doing everything right. And this guy taught me the power of the mind and what I could do. And I focused on some of the things that I could do and I put some processes in place, changed my entire mindset because of some struggles I'd had. Instead of trying to be preventative and trying to just make sure that nothing bad happened, I had to put my butt on the line. I had to put it, I had to put my neck on the line. And it was essentially at that moment when I said, look, this is what I'm doing. And, and I can deal with the failure. I've been creating failure my entire career. So everything that I was fearing, I was already doing. So why would I fear it anymore? Right? Why would I continue to have that problem? And so what happened was I went through the process and I got into the mindset of taking care of my business and, and got, got all or nothing really. Like I am going to go out there and dominate. And despite the fact that I didn't have some of the best skills, I actually did dominate for two years in college and then decided after that, I was like, look, this, this mental stuff is pretty damn strong. And I got my PhD in clinical psychology. So I'm a clinician. I'm licensed as a clinician. I did my internship up in Rhode Island at Brown Medical School, which it's affiliated with our PhD program. And then I worked in the corporate setting for about eight years doing research, development, education while I was building an understanding of what makes people tick. And then I just started working with pro athletes and college athletes and anybody who wanted to find the edge. So that's kind of how I got into what I do. And, and, and I love it. It's a great responsibility. I wish it was more tangible. I wish we could look at somebody and say, you know, can you lift this weight to know you're mentally tough? But we have to get into people's thoughts, feelings, doubts, and insecurities to understand them. So awesome. There's so much to unpack there. So what are some of the common roadblocks you run into with the athletes you're dealing with? I mean, the list is probably extensive, but I'm curious if there's a couple that come to mind that maybe you're working with now. Like, yeah, you could just run with that. Well, I mean, number one is everybody has self-doubt. Everybody has insecurity. Okay. Everybody has negative thoughts, right? This fact that people are bulletproof mindsets and that they're just flawless and perfect. Now, anytime we go to a level of uncertainty or discomfort, our mind gets flooded with negative thoughts, gets flooded with fear, it gets flooded with uncertainty because, because the mind can't handle uncertainty. It has to have predictability. But the problem is we actually live in a world of chaos and the competitive environment or the living environment that we live in, nothing is known. I mean, my God, 2020 should be the greatest example of that ever. Who would have ever thought we've had a pandemic that shuts down our world economy, right? And so, you know, when you look at the uncertainty of competition or training or sales meeting or anything that we're going into, the mind is not going to go, God, you're just freaking awesome. I never told you how great you are. It tells you, don't screw this up. Right. Well, the reason is, is that, that that negative thought, that fear, that stress, normally we can resolve it. We can go, no, I'm ready, I'm prepared, and I have a plan and a purpose. The mind can't stop there, though. So then it goes and goes, well, did you prepare for that? And then it locks in on that. And that becomes the worry and the stress that we have. So everybody struggles with that. Okay. What we perceive of other though, when we see other people, we see them walking around confident and like they got it together. They may be confident about one thing, or we may be projecting what we actually are insecure about onto their image and go, oh, see how confident they are. They don't have, they don't have a thought bubble over their head. We don't have any clue. They may just be standing up to the fight. They just may be standing in the storm, right? So I think that's one of the biggest issues. The other thing that people don't have is people people are really impatient, okay? If success isn't happening fast enough, we abandon because it's scary. And the motivation that starts us is never the motivation that finishes us. 
Okay, so the motivation to get started on a training program is never the motivation three weeks in when you wake up in the morning, you're like, I'm not doing that. Okay, you don't remember what started it. You got to remember what creates it every day. So we have to boil things down into building blocks and momentum builders. And, you know, it's just kind of like if you go to Bush Gardens, right, or Disney World, and you go on an old, there's two types of roller coasters. There's the old roller coasters that have to climb, 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 climb. Then they use that momentum until they have to climb again. But new roller coasters today, there's a magnet every 15 yards or 50 yards that just continues to propel you. We have to really think like that. So what are the small motivators? Well, let's focus on the small steps. And sometimes literally, and, and there's a great book by James Clear called Atomic Habits. It's a very a big common, fan. a big fan. Yeah. You know, I wrote a book 10 years ago called The 1% Principle. 1%'s have been around a long time, but it was, I read his book. I'm like, damn, if I had just published it, it was a lot of the same consistencies. Right. It's nothing new. And that's what makes James such a brilliant writer is that it's nothing new. It's the fact that he packaged it in a much better program than I could ever do. But the fact is, right, if you don't wake up in the morning and put on your gym clothes, you ain't working out. If you don't pack your gym clothes, you're not working out. If you don't pack your lunch, you're not eating healthy. Well, if you don't show up to practice with a plan, if you don't show up to the gym with a plan, you're not going to do a hard workout. You're just simply not. And people have to understand that the little blocks that we build our confidence and our success is what builds long-term belief in ourselves. Not the big moments that all of a sudden the gates open, the angels sing, and we rock on. That crap doesn't exist. Right. It's the little things that we go, it's, how, how do you find happiness? You know when you have it and you're like, I mean, I get, I, I don't know. But if you, I just be happy, we romanticize a mountain on the, you know, a castle on the hill and that's our identity. We never really get that because we get it. We go, that just doesn't make me happy. Right. It's the same as success. Yeah. We look around and go, crap, I'm somewhat successful, but I want that new house on the hill. Yeah, That's what we do. So incredible, man. There's so much to unpack there. So um, looking at uncertainty, I want, I'd love for it to have you kind of walk us through what does it look like to start overcoming this stuff, right? So without a shadow of a doubt, we're all doubting it. And, and some people, like you say, have that ability to almost turn that off, like the lack of hesitation. I feel the uncertainty, but I do it anyways. And yep. you have some people who are paralyzed by it. I think the the peril is, you know, being paralyzed and being stressed is is part of what we have to go through, right? I mean, I think it's, you know, I think the stress that we have in the heat of the moment is not so much the fact that we got paralyzed. What we have to look at is stress, anxiety, uncertainty, pressure. Those are all factors that we must be willing to to understand, okay? We must be willing to see the benefit that those give us because stress, pressure, uncertainty are giving us something new. They're giving us insight. They're giving us an insight into, into new opportunities, Mm-hmm. Okay. And we have to study that. We have to value that. We have to appreciate that. And we have to also, and more importantly, trust that what we're doing is prepared for the uncertainty. See, we want certainty and predictability so much, but we don't grow under predictability because we never have to stretch. But if we can use the experience, it's not all or nothing, fail or lose or win or succeed. It's there's gray area in everything that we do. And so when we struggle, we have to go back and say, what did I miss? What did I struggle with there? What did I not gain there? What can I do to be better there? Next time I'm in that situation, what can I do to learn better? Then we apply and we go to the next one. I mean, we got to lick our wounds and move on. 
So do you think it's a necessary, uh, I mean, I'm guessing you, you've created some type of process or is it often a dynamic process? Because it sounds like reflection is a big piece of the puzzle, but I don't think it's it's inherently uh, natural for someone to want to step back and, and kind of reflect. I mean, I think some high level athletes are their own worst critic. They're certainly reflecting on everything they do. But I think the average person, and correct me if I'm wrong, probably doesn't spend a lot of time reflecting. No, I think there's five things that people should do every single day. Okay. And, and I don't, by the way, working with clients, I don't have a process because everybody's psychological fingerprint is different. So I'm yeah. going to use ideas and thoughts and concepts and get to understand who you are or the team or the organization. Then I'm going to build a model around some of the funda- fundamental principles. It's kind of like using a spice rack, you know, chili pepper in for everything. Okay. All right. So there's five things that people should do every day and they should do the administrative tasks first. Okay. Administrative tasks are the things that are from here to the next three weeks. Those are the things that we need to do every single day. Those are the things like, hey, I got to pay the bills. Oh, I got to call the electric company. Those are the hassles. But if we get them out of our way, we're okay. But the problem with administrative tasks is we don't like to do them. So we push them off because we like to be pie in the sky thinkers. We want to brainstorm. We want to play that game. When that game, unfortunately, the problem with that game is our administrative tasks build up on us. And then we're driving in the road and we go, oh my God, I forgot to do that. Okay. It's like, get that stuff done first stuff. That's between now and the next three weeks. Let's get our things taken care of. Book your hotel flights, schedule your meetings, schedule your team meetings. Like how many people have team meetings? And then when everyone sits down, they hand out the agenda. Well, you just lost the first 15 minutes of your team meeting because everybody's going, please don't be on this. Please don't be on this. Please. Okay, good. I'm not on this. Okay. But if I give it to them 24 hours in advance, now everybody's prepared. The second type of task we need to do every day is what I call developmental tasks. Those are the tasks that are three weeks to three, four, five months out. We're planning. And I may have a meeting with you and say, hey, look, we're going to have a workshop in September. Cool. Okay. October. Great. We're still developing it. We're still coming to ideas. And there may be administrative tasks that I have to do today, but you and I are brainstorming and thinking of some ideas. And if you're a business owner, if you're an athlete, yes, I want you thinking about the future. Yes, I want you planning for it. I want you living today, but planning for tomorrow. The third kind is we got to train. Every day we should be training in some way. We should be training in our skills. We should be training in our wisdom and our knowledge base, reading, watching videos, studying. Don't just watch things that align to our thought process. Put yourself out there and read and learn and grow from other areas. Number four, we should practice and train execution. I mean, you, you need to be in the heat of the moment doing the things that you need to be doing. If you're in the heat of the moment and this first time you've done it is in that heat of the moment, it's not the time to do it. Right. You need to train execution. You need to train being in that moment. Okay. And then finally, and this is your question about reflection and journaling, is you need to have a review time. Review is where you sit down and go, okay, what were the things that went well together? What's the plan I need for tomorrow? What's the stuff I got to go through? We judge our reactions and our responses so much. But when we lack review processes, what happens is we allow emotion to guide our decision-making and our impressions. And I don't know about you, but my emotions are not always up in the up and up. You know, I'm tired, I'm worn out. And if I don't have things written down, what's guiding my overall impression? What's guiding it is my most recent emotion. God, I never have a good day. Really? Last week, you had an amazing week. You know, last week you had amazing gains in the gym or you had amazing gains in your training. But today you got your butt kicked because we've raised the stakes and you feel bad about yourself. So now 
you're judging because it's not fast enough when in truth you're you're progressing at such a rate that's incredible and so taking the time 15 minutes is all it takes that's one percent of your day take the time and sit down and journal your you know like these are some of the things that i did these are some and having that accurate time one to disconnect from the trauma and the drama of the day because most of us are fire you know firemen and women during the day we're just trying to survive till tomorrow okay which this will help you realize hey let's put bookends on this when i go home now i'm home all right i may have two or three things i need to do but i don't have that nagging administrative task that i forgot to call the power company again okay i got it done and i'm more organized in my thought the mind will always go to drama and trauma always and and it's why when we're sitting at the beach by ourselves thoughts will pop in our head but if we're under pressure thoughts push more and more so let's lower the pressure by getting more organized in our thought and journaling and being reflective and understanding ourselves allows it to go on paper you know and, and i think that helps absolutely how does the process different differ for you from an amateur athlete a college athlete to a pro athlete because i feel like those i mean i could be wrong but feel like they're two completely different animals actually it doesn't change much at all where we compete is the type of competitor we call ourselves if we play basketball we're a basketball player if we play golf we're a golfer if we're a sales leader, we're a sales leader, right? If we're in sales, we're a sales leader. I, I had a conversation with James Andrews a couple of years ago. James Andrews is the orthopedic surgeon based in Birmingham, world-renowned ortho orthopedic, went to LSU like I did, just much older than I am. So an affinity there. But, you know, I asked him, I said, how do you, how do you manage everything? And he gave me his rules of living and they were brilliant. Like never badmouth another practitioner, never instill hope, instill understanding. People can derive hope on their own. Um, and the other one was, he, he said, study the best. Get, your, get immersed in the best to be able to treat the average person. And the reason for that is the best are just, they may be better at 5 or 10%, but they're not superstars in everything in their life. I love my professional athletes to death, okay, the ones I work with. But just because they do amazing things on a field doesn't mean they're amazing dads or tax accountants. Okay. They're really good at those things. Now they may have more access to people. The best are willing to use those connections and learn from other people that are around. So they may say, you know, one, you know, one of my guys may say, oh, look, I've got a, one of my dear friends is a fortune 100 CEO. So we'll get together and we'll talk. Well, that's a, that's a very impressive library to be around, right? To be able to sit and ask questions of somebody who's made boardroom decisions that, that influence investors all over the world. Okay. That's pretty cool. Sit and talk to them about how they manage pressure. The same way I may, I, you know, I like to talk to buddies of mine who are, um, you know, out there and, and competing in a way of, of, you know, in the military or they're competing in sales organizations or, you know, whatever, whatever they're competing at, the skills are very similar. I want them to have high belief in themselves, a readiness to ad adapt and adjust and be flexible to any changing demand in front of them and to always be gaining wisdom about who they are and how they face the next challenge. So looking back at your experience as a an athlete who struggled, what advice did that sports psychologist give you back then, other than just effectively to, you know, you got to get out there and kind of burn the boats and, 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 and yeah. give it your all? Uh, I'm sure there was many levels. I'd like to kind of compare and contrast that compared against what you would say to someone in the same boat now. He used a lot of visualization and relaxation, which was very powerful. And I actually don't do a whole lot of that now. It's like um, almost hypnosis? It was a little bit. 
it was yeah. a little bit about mental rehearsals and going through the processes. And, and that was what I needed back then. That was the core of his work was, was relaxation and visualization. And, and I needed that. I needed to go through the mental scripts. I don't do that as much because there's so many resources online that are so awesome now. I mean, you know, Headspace and stuff like that and Calm and, and visualization scripts that are out there. I usually encourage people to do it on their own. What I needed back then was I needed to not be an if-then player. If I do this, then I can do that. Okay. And, and if then players are very common in the game and in, in the people that I see in today's world, we all live if then, right? Well, if I feel safe, then I can do this. If I do that, then I can do this. If people like me, if my boss gives me positive feedback, then I can do that. If I can see success on this lift, then I can do that. Okay. Why do we need that evidence? Why do we need that validation? What is the, what is the story that we tell ourselves that we actually need that? We don't need it. It helps a little bit, sure, but we don't really need it. What we need is is an unfiltered push to achieve what we want, okay? And if we are willing to put it on the line, we usually find a way to adapt. The fact is when we only got one foot in the water, it's really hard to adapt to swimming when half our body's in and half our body's out. And emotionally, very few of us ever go all in. Most people hold back 5 or 10% of their effort level. Or and what more. I do, oh, more. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, athletes I find is, and I love my athletes. Look, I'm not knocking them. I'm, I was one of them and you're one of them. And okay. But when you ask them, did you go, oh, I mean, I, I didn't quite empty the tank. Why not? Well, you know, I just didn't know how much more we had to do. So you're allowing something of the uncertainty of the future to guide your effort right now. Well, I didn't want to run out of gas later. Or I didn't want, see, I think it gives us a built in excuse. Like, well, if I, the reason is, is that, you know, how scary it is to give 100% of your effort and fail. To give everything you have and fail, because then the only conclusion that you think you can make is, I'm just not good enough. See, people would rather say, well, if I'd just given a little bit more. That's such a cop-out that I lived every single day for 19 years. Like, I know that game. It's total bullshit. Like, I get it. We have to be better than that. And the fact is, is that we are truly, truly great. Brene Brown, one of the best in our field, uh, the researcher and social worker and doctorate level social worker at a university of Houston says it perfect. We've got to dare to be great, right? The vulnerability is the key to our success because only when we're, we have no other options, you know, we burn our boats. Do we actually find a way to live where we are, but our mind never allows us to go all in. And what happened was I was working for one of my teams and I was watching this one kid who's super talented, but he just always seemed to hold on and he would never come in first in sprints or anything. And, and I asked him, I said, you know, what's going on there? He said, well, I just don't want to run out of gas. I'm like, well, what happens if you do? That's a terrible feeling. I'm like, but your gas tank will never get bigger because you're constantly constraining it. So I, I took a group of, I was working for another university too. I was a consultant to him and this is a smaller school. So you have a little bit more flexibility to do this. And so I took the kids out and we went with the, tra- the strength coach. And I said, look, because we were in a meeting with the coaches and the coaches said, our kids just don't seem to have anything left in the tank. I mean, like we're doing the conditioning, but they're just not getting stronger. Like, okay. So I said, what do y'all do every day after conditioning? Well, we run these things we call rounders, which they run a 110, a 110, and a 110. And then they walk across the infield of a track and they do it again. And they have to do 12 of them under a certain time frame in order to pass. I'm like, okay. I said, what do you think the common mentality is for each kid? Survive, 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 and advance. I said, so what they're doing is they're throttling themselves back. 
every single run. And at the end, they're just hoping that they have enough to make it through number 11 and 12. And that's when they do their gut check, right? And then we reward that and say, great job to give it everything you have. No, you didn't. You gave your best and just over 10% of your, I mean, that sucks. Like, that's not good. So I said, we're going to change it. I said, we're going to let them personally choose how many each one runs. The only caveat is two caveats. One, they have to give 100% of every run they give. And number two, when they say they're out, there's no criticism of that kid. If that kid goes, coach, I got nothing else, then go in the center field and cheer on everyone else. But I know what's going to happen. The true competitor is going to sit in that center field and have regret. You're like, damn it, I think I had a little bit left. First kid quits at three. Three. Kid had been running 12. He quit at three. The next kid puked at four. These kids have been doing this for four months. They should have been in better shape than that. The average kid quit around eight. And then there was a core group of kids that were like, ain't quitting. Enough to pry me off this track. We pulled them together afterwards. And it showed exactly what we all believed. The kids that couldn't win the inner battle were quitting on themselves. And the ones that were mental warriors refused. Okay. And so the strength coach who I love, he's now at a Big Ten school. And he said, guys, what was the challenge of that workout? Kid raised hand. That was the hardest workout I've ever done. He said, you only ran seven rounders. He said, yeah, but for the first time I gave everything I had. And his next question is, when are we doing it again? See, we all have to be willing to fail, to sit there and go, I know I was worth more than that. Like when I work out and train, I got to kind of know I can do it before I really give all my effort. I wish I wasn't that guy. You know, if I get on the Peloton and I'm doing a run, you know, I'm doing a hard push, I always walk back and say, I could have probably given more back in that 10 minute mark. Okay. But if I go back and do the workout again, I could crush it. I wish I I didn't do that, but that's just my natural. I want to know certainty before I give. My wife, now she's a little different when it comes to training. She'll walk out into the darkness and not have any idea. Very few of us are like that. Most of us want to know what's inside that darkness before we turn on the light. So much brilliance to that. I mean, unpacking that and the application and really everything, every sport out there that exists is massive. And, and, you know, one thing that I deal with in my sports with my athletes is trying to balance the internal and the external motivations. And it sounds like you've just found a way there to hack you know, accumulating internal motivation, finding that little bit of uh, regret, as you say, I mean, like, I know I can do better. And that's where that pilot light seems to almost get lit. Any advice then on, on someone who's maybe shifted to having more of an external motivation and looking to come back? External motivations are real, right? I mean, I think that there's three major factors and drives that we all have beyond the basic needs, right? We all have to have a need for accomplishment. We all have to have a need for social acceptance, we all have to have a need for stability. Okay. Those are all internal and external. Okay. There's, they're both there. I want to feel internally accomplished, but I like it when I hang championship jerseys on the wall. Okay. I like it when a client does really well and I make more money. That feels good. I also like the thank you call, but you know, enough thank yous don't get me anywhere. It doesn't pay our bills, right? I don't mean to sound bad. Oh. Okay. So we all have internal and external motivators. Where we get in trouble is when the external motivators short circuit our internal belief systems because we can never validate them. So where we short circuit is this validation need because nothing in the external world will ever give you the validation to be happy and to stop. It just won't. You know, one championship, let's win two. One million, let's get five. 
never met a content millionaire ever. Right. I never have enough money. Okay. And so we also want social acceptance. Okay. Now there's a biological reason for that. And there's a book by Richard Wright called the why Buddhism is true, which is just an absolute brilliant. Got it on my shelf right there. Yeah. It's, it's absolutely brilliant because he looks at it from an evolutionary psychology stance is why social acceptance is so important. So when people tell my athletes, don't worry about whatever think I'm like, you guys are full of just such crap. Stop that because everybody worries what other people think. Why do we dress the way we dress? There are very few people who are so out of tune with social connection. Okay. I don't know if they're happier. I don't know if they're not, but every single one of us is trying to do something for some social acceptance. The problem is when we lose that, or we lose our validation. I want our internal validation to be, I saw a challenge. I reached for it. I struggled. I overcame it. Boom. Feels good. And there's the dopamine rush we get and the feeling of a success that we have in our brain. Okay, fine. Now what? Well, if we don't have that social need, we would kind of, kind of just keep doing the same thing. But if I put you at a slot machine that hits every single time, you'll get bored with it. You know, you, you'll, you'll leave. And you could set a video game on your phone to win every time you do it. You'll stop playing because it's just not challenging enough. We, there was a meta-analysis that was done in the scientific literature looking at the amount of failure we need to have. And I always get flustered when people say, you've got to fail to succeed. You don't. You can succeed without failing. You just need about 15% of struggle to succeed. Okay. And that's what the meta-analysis showed across the CIA and linguistics and everything is that the absolute right rate for training and education is about a 15% struggle or failure rate. It's just enough that you can still have mastery, but we don't abandon it. If I give you a puzzle, like during this pandemic, or my youngest daughter is 19, got some puzzles, right? Some of the puzzles were so insanely stupid. Now I give her credit. She kept working on it, but I was like, I don't got the time and energy for this. I gotta go back to work. But when it gave me just enough of a challenge that made me stretch, but I felt proud of doing it, I was okay with it. I'll give you an example. So the other day I was on the Peloton and I don't know if you're a Peloton guy. I mean, you're more into fitness than I am, but I mean, look, it's at least I'm moving. Okay. Yeah. And I get on and I see the hashtag buns of anarchy come up and I follow some of the NFL guys and some of my PGA tour guys and they'll be in that group. And I see this guy and he pops up. We just happen to start the same workout at the same time. And this guy's a retired NFL guy. Right. And I'm like, Oh, no way he's beating me. I am going to, and I could open up his profile and I could follow everything that he did. So when he increased resistance, I increased resistance. When he increased cadence, I increased it, everything. And I was like, damn straight, man. He gave me the motivation. Okay. He doesn't know he did that. What it really was, was my motivation. It's like, I could do better than what I think I can because I had somebody, an external source pulling on me. Okay. That's why we need both. I need sometimes that anchor to hook onto. I did a workout yesterday, didn't have anybody I looked in, and I was I struggled. I literally struggled because I couldn't find people that I could hook into. And I'm not the most mentally strong when it comes to exercise. That's why I'm overweight. I don't enjoy it. But you know, when the CrossFit phase was going crazy, whatever, I didn't give a crap about the grease board. Like that didn't I didn't care. I was like, oh, I did more burpees than anyone. I'm six foot five. Burpees are not meant for people my size. You, you don't see giraffes and hippopotamuses falling in the open prairie and standing back up. Right. Okay. They're not meant for that. I'm sorry. You may like them. I can't stand them, but it's a long way down for me. Sure. I understand the benefit of them. I just don't like them. There you go. 
What do you do with athletes or clients who don't want to really open up to you? Like I know from an athlete's perspective, you know, sometimes talking about their limitations is an indication of signs of weakness. Very few people do open up in the first time out. So part of my job is to develop, you know, that kind of rapport, but understanding that I live in a world of resistance. I have a training program I call the Catalyst School which is such a good thing. It's 20 bucks a month. I'm not selling it, but I'm just telling you why it's, I love it. It's $20 a month. It's four live trainings a month with me. Okay. It's all online. It's archived, whatever. We did an entire workshop on the resistance because what I found from coaches is resistance is one of the major problems that we see. But what happens when we face resistance is the vast majority of us respond with our own resistance, right? How would they, whatever. I mean, come on, oh, trust me. Why would they trust you? Why? Why would somebody just open up their heart and soul to you? And so instead, as, and as a psychologist, you got to remember, very few people want to come see the psychologist, man. I think we're pretty much lower than the dentist, okay? People don't come in and go, God, I mean, some people like, I just love to pour my heart and soul to some dude or some chick. Like, I love it. Now, some people do. And over time, you can develop that rapport where people actually enjoy it. And they, once you become self-exploration and self-introspection, that's awesome. But when a player comes to see me, they have an issue at hand. They have a problem that they need solving. I'm not performing like I want, and I want you to help me find the answer. So what I have to do is during that period of time, I have to help them find that answer. But then I have to start working to build rapport to say, look, there's some other things that we need to look at. Because if you want to reach a level of performance that you believe that you're capable of, there's some other things that we need to get there. The problem is we've all made that mistake, right? Of coming right out of the gate and going, Ben, dude, you've got to change this. Well, that's not why I was here. Okay. So they're gone. And I learned that the hard way. I, I always tell a story about working with a clinical case a long time ago. I was in grad school. I had a lady who came to see me. She was in her 50s. She came in for depression. And I worked in a low income setting. It was a primary care hospital. It was a general hospital, but it was, I mean, we had like a fifth grade reading level, very poor, very tough charity hospital system in Louisiana. She sits down with me. She was awesome. And she sits down and, and she's coming in for depression. I'm like, no problem. I work her up. I talk to her and I come and find out she's got obsessive compulsive disorder. Now, I'm not talking about perfectionism, okay, that we often call OCD. I'm talking like this lady could not get out of her house because she couldn't stop washing her hands, okay? And we kind of look at that now as a great social distancer. But truth of the matter was she couldn't function. And it had gotten a lot worse. And that's what led to her depression. Because if you isolate yourself long enough, as we know in this pandemic, depression's a risk. So I go back in and I meet with her after, because at that time I was in training, I had to go present it to my case or whatever. I come back in, I'm like, ma'am, I know you're depressed, but you've got this whopping case of OCD and I'm going to do this, this, and this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fix you. She never came back. See, and I, I went back out and talked to my professor and, you know, I'm talking to him and a couple weeks later, he's like, hey, that woman ever come back? Like, no. He goes, yeah, I didn't think she would. I said, why not? He goes, you didn't fix her problem. See, she had OCD since she was 18. It just now caused a problem. She needs you to focus on the problem, not the underlying issue. If you wanted to get to the underlying issue, you got to build some trust with her out and fix that problem. I think that's what we as coaches do. Sometimes we see the big picture so much that instead of cause, helping them solve the problem and giving a mastery and belief to trust us and not push them too hard, give them just enough. Okay. And then start building that rapport. And then, because a lot of times what happens is I'll get a call from their other coaches and go, did you know about this? They were just telling me, I'm like, why would they tell me that? Well, they, I mean, you're the psychologist. They should. I'm like, 
they're so cool and comfortable with you. When I show up, it's like, oh, shrinks here, shrinks here. So I try to de-escalate that very quickly and go to dinner a lot with my players and we'll have beer and wine with them. And just they realize that when I take off my shrink hat, I'm off. Just like if I'm going to go with you, you're a hell of a lot more fit than I am. I don't want you to judge what I'm eating. If I want the cheese sticks, I'm getting the cheese sticks. Okay. But the fact is, is that when I'm there, like I want them to earn that trust with me and go, you know, it's so funny. I had a situation this past week. I have a player I've worked with for a long time. It's had a lot of success and he's struggling and he's just, his caddy calls me and he's just pissed, man. The caddy's pissed. He's pissed. And I said, what's going on? Ah, nothing. I said, no, what's really going on? Like what's the real thing that's you're hating right now? God, I just, and he just started talking and it was like, you could tell he wanted to, but he was scared to go there because he didn't want to be, he's been playing great ever since. And it was just almost like the fact that he just had to have a bust of his, he just had to break that seal a little bit. And, you know, we have to build that trust with them. We have to give them that opportunity to wade in the water a little bit and to know that they're not going to drown and we're not going to judge them. You took the words out of my mouth. Is most going to say is that's just as simple as non-judgment. It's like just listening, without being critical and not judging. Yeah, I mean, people always say, "God, you know, you probably never heard this before," and you should never say that to a psychologist because we have, like, ten times worse too. I mean, I always say that to try to be funny, but if you think you're experiencing something for the first time and you're unique, trust me. And I think that's what the brilliance of being a clinician allows me to be. Is like, I've heard it all. They train you to not blush, to not respond when people say things and you're like, hmm, you know, okay. You learn very quickly when somebody asks you a question, says something to you that you're not used to, you take a sip of your water just to try to like block your response because we elicit non-verbals. We don't want to be judgmental because the pain that people are going through, that's legit. And nobody has thought bubbles above their head. I don't know what you're struggling with. You could tell me, but is it true? I don't know what you had to find deep inside you. Like, if I'm dealing with a runner, right, and they're running a 5,000 meter race, right? Do we know what that person next to you that one found in their kick? It may have been the fact that they absolutely hated you or they hated their coaches, they hated their, and they're funneling that energy. And that's why I think that every one of us has our own competitive personality that we have to learn to identify to understand what that edge is and that chip is and that fuel is so that we get our mind right when we need to get our mind right. But instead of allowing circumstances to define that, we need to find that ourselves. And when we have to learn to tap into that so that before I go out and compete, it's like, give me a moment to reconnect. Look, Michael Jordan, the greatest athlete we know, and if you saw it in the show Last Dance, they talked about it. He had an entire agenda and chip on his shoulder that his dad favored his older brother. He kind of did, but his dad knew that motivated Michael to never stop. So Michael continued to create a scenario where he'd find a reason to hate you as your opponent. Like most people say, well, I mean, if he was really that good, he wouldn't need to do that. No, he was that good that he understood that. Yeah. Like he figured that out while other people are still walking aimlessly. Like if I go give a talk, 5,000 people in the audience or whatever, I want to feel hype. I want to feel energy. I want to feel motivation because I can push. I learned that pitching. It's the only way I can push through my doubts is to feel so excited to do something. So I'm not against taking an espresso before I go out there, but I'm also not against going out there and acknowledging the crowd. And you know, I'm not like Tony Robbins. I'm not going to ask you to hug on people and clap and woo, all that other stuff. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to know my start. And I'm going to bring it to you in, in the beginning because I want to get your attention. Then that allows me to relax. Okay. Everybody needs to know what their personality is in the heat of the moment. 
we have to do the same thing as coaches. Don't just show up, drink a cup of coffee and go, okay, who's next on my agenda? No, that person demands the best of you. You better get your butt ready for it. How do we know? How do we start to identify what is driving us, right? So Jordan, obviously over years and time identified like, man, I get pissed off, I perform well. And, you know, I was the same way. Like if I found someone that I was usually pissed off at myself or something or pissed off at somebody else, but how do we start to identify that if we're not someone who's in the trenches as often as, as someone like Jordan? Well, I mean, that's the reflection, right? And what I always ask players is, look, and this goes at every age, and this goes to coaches too. When you're coaching or leading at your best, if I could give you a pill that you would be there immediately, what would you want to be? Everybody has the answer. You know, there are five different types, okay? Number one is the amp up. You and I probably were the amp up guys. We had to feel the energy, the excitement, the adrenaline. We had to feel it pumping through our veins, and I had to find that edge. I had to hate you as a competitor. Like, I'm not against looking at the competitors in my field. I love them to death and they're friends of mine, but I still want to beat them. Number two is the tactician. They're not really too concerned about beating us per se. They're concerned about how good can they do with their job? How good can they follow their process? Mariano Rivera, pitcher for New York Yankees, the closer. He wanted to perfect his process. Okay. Nick Saban, Alabama football coach. He wants to perfect his process. It's not about amping up. He'll give hype talks and all that. But how good can you do your job? That's a tactician. Number three is what I call a bubble guy and or bubble girl. This sometimes gets confused with the tactician, but the bubble is you put yourself in your own little bubble and it's the own battle with the challenge in front of you, who you are and how you do it. But it's just me against you. Mano, mano, chick against chick, however you want to say it, right? It's my battle with you and I'm going to learn and I'm going to grow and I'm going to develop. And it doesn't matter who's in the stands. It's me against you. Okay. The fourth one is what I call the worrier. That's the person who worries about everything. But while they're worrying about everything, what they're doing is they're running through scenarios in their head. What's the worst that can happen? What's the worst that can happen? Now, the problem is they're the ones that end up vomiting all over the shoes of everyone else because I end up carrying your worries, right? But that person doesn't care. I mean, at the end of the day, they're like, got it done, taken care of, we cool. The last one is the one, you know, it's kind of like what I call the chosen one, which is it's a little bit like a let go, let God. I do it to the best of my ability. There's a bigger force at play here. And so knowing that and knowing who you are, it's really important. The bubble player is, it's okay to have emotion. The tactician rarely shows emotion. The amp always shows. The bubble is going to adjust according to what they need to do in that moment to find a way. It's their dance. They're playing the dance with the music. One of my players on the PJ Tour is brilliant at that. Some days he's very tactical and very perfectionistic. And other days he comes out there and he's like, I'm going to run your ass over. And he will. He called me one time. He said, I'm going to this tournament. I'm going to win it. I'm like, no, shouldn't. nope, I need this right now. All right, go do it. And he came in second, lipped out on the last hole. Shocking. Four days later. I mean, just that was his bubble. It was, what can I learn from this engagement right now? And so I think the best way to know what kind of personality you are is to observe be aware, understand how we manufacture. We can manufacture that that angst, that edge, that blade there, 100%. You took the words out of my mouth again. It's like, okay, so your friend, this PGA guy came back and said, hey, I'm going to do it. He manufactured that state that he needed to be his greatest. How? Just like just summoning it, maybe setting an intention, or is it identifying well, characteristics and environment that set you up? Well, it was just like me. You know, when I said earlier when I was pitching, I had to have my neck on the line, right? When I opened up the mind side of my own business, I left a very successful pharmaceutical job that paid for all my expenses, but I needed my butt on the line a little bit. I needed to hustle. 
I needed to go and I needed to, to feel that. Okay. That would amp me up. Okay. For him, it was, he needed to make the declaration. He needed to stand behind himself and say, I'm going for this. Now it was a risky move for him. I mean, obviously it could have blown up in our face, but it didn't. He played very well. But by doing that, by taking the responsibility and the accountability and the personal for him, like him, it was okay. He was willing to do that. He hasn't done it since, by the way. Hasn't done it since. Hasn't had a need, maybe. Hasn't had a need to. Yeah, so there's a perfect thing. Like, I'm trying to bottle this ultimately, and you're the conduit. So constantly putting your butt on the line is not the same as actually having your butt on the line, right? So some people don't work with a declaration. That doesn't motivate everybody, right? As you just kind of alluded to. Some people need their butt on the line to perform. But if they don't actually need their butt on the line, can you manufacture it? Well, I mean, I think it's what's important. I mean, our ego is always on the line, right? And so our pride is very important. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if I look at my wife when she's exercising, she doesn't need somebody to yell and scream at her. I, I can't remember working out with her when we were doing CrossFit 10 years ago and people were like, come on. She's like, okay, back away. Shut up. Don't need that. <laughs> Shut up. Yeah. Don't need that. She needs people to say, here it is. And she's got to win the battle inside of her head. She's extraordinarily mentally strong when it comes to that. She will not go in unless she can go all in. Okay. So she doesn't dabble. She's either in or she's out. And that's her risk, right? But when she's in, everything is sacrificed for it. And that's in life. I mean, that's the way she is in everything she does. She's all in. If she's going to do a job, she's going to do it to the best of her ability. And, and you know, she's able to manage being a mom and, and wife and all that other stuff. But I mean, she's not going to go play tennis either. Like people would try to get her to go play tennis. She's like, no, I'm exercising right now. That's her mindset. I'm in an exercise mode. And she will exercise two or three times a day. That's 100%. Okay. And I think knowing what fuels you, not everybody wants to win. There's a great book called Drive by Daniel Pink. Mm-hmm. Another one on your bookshelf, right? It's literally right there. <laughs> yeah. I'll hit one that's not here soon. But he talks about the carrot and the stick, right? Yep. But what we really do is we beat the crap out of ourselves with the stick. Okay. That's why we need the internal drive. You know, most people look at it and go, eh, it's just not worth it. Like I'll give you an example. At Alabama football, they have a fourth quarter training program that they do in the off season in most normal years. COVID, they couldn't. But it's the fourth quarter. And it's brutal. A lot of it's mental training. It's a lot of moments of just absolute vulnerability. And can you find the kick within and compete against your colleagues? It's all competition. Well, every former coach that's been at Alabama has a fourth quarter program at their school now. So we're sitting at a conference last year and I'm sitting with a bunch of trainers. I was giving a talk on injury and and the trainer that I work with at Alabama, we're all sitting there and they all come back and they're like, you know, we do that fourth quarter program at XYZ. It just doesn't seem to work as good. So I went to dinner that night and I was talking to my colleague. I said, you know why it doesn't work as good? It's because at Bama, we do it to make ourselves better. Everywhere else, they do it to equal us. Massive difference. Right. See, we don't, at Bama, we don't go, what's Texas A&M doing? No, they go, outwork yesterday. Be better tomorrow. Your standard is raised every day. Everyone else are like, what did Bama do this offseason? Well, we got to do that. Okay. That's a failure. I would automatically tell them, don't name it the fourth quarter program. Name it something else. Name it your special thing. Make it special. Look, I'm going to say this as a joke, but why is the Big Mac a common burger? No other fast food agency has one. Burger King will come out with a King Whopper every now and then it flops. It goes off the menu. Okay. But it's their thing. They perfected it. Mm -hmm. And everybody measures against McDonald's. It's interesting. There's a great podcast series called How I Built This by Guy Raz. You listen to that? Yep. Yep. Did you listen to the episode about five guys? I didn't. Brilliant. 
So when Five Guys started, the owner, I can't remember his name, he and his four sons, hence Five Guys, started and he said, I want to start a burger restaurant in downtown Baltimore in the worst part of town where I can afford the rent. If my burger's good, people will find me. So he spent all of his time on the best ingredients and he sourced one of his kids to be the inventory specialist. The mayonnaise is special. Nobody really knows what mayonnaise it is, but it's a special blend. It's not Hellman's. It's not Duke's. It's something. The French fries, it was something that he identified in Atlantic City on the boardwalk. And he says very clearly, McDonald's ain't our competition. I mean, you can go get a Big Mac for $1.99. I don't know what it is. You know how much a Five Guys burger is? I don't. Exactly. Five bucks. Oh, it's more than that. Is it? Yeah. And his point is, if it's good, you'll pay for it. You got to know who you are. Are you McDonald's? That's fine if you're McDonald's. Like, that's awesome. Win that game. McDonald's can't be five guys as much as five guys can't be McDonald's. Right. You got to be who you are and you got to study that. That's where businesses screw up, right? Look, the best athletes in the world, they have one or two superpowers. Okay. And they believe in it and they trust it and they don't waste their time trying to be multifaceted and generalists. Stop in this world trying to be a generalist. Be a specialist and own it. So speaking of that fourth quarter event, is there repercussions? I mean, obviously I get the, we're Bama, we want to be the best. How do we be at our best? But is there actual repercussions? So I'm just, I'm curious as to how they get people to be motivated on every play. You have the best college football coach to ever coach the game is your head coach. Okay. But it's interesting, right? I mean, when are people going to go, you know, I can go somewhere else and not have to be pushed as hard. Okay. And you'll see that and there'll be a switch. LSU, my alma mater this past year went in more sports science. Okay, but Coach Saban is the most adaptive coach there's ever been. He just he evolves. He's not running 1970s football. And you'll draw the right people, right? If he, if he has the you reputation that. for that, you'll know you'll draw people who want to work. See, if you have a team that's all in, the standards are raised by the team members. If you have people who are not, then what happens is you have to establish rules. Like you don't have to tell these players and the older players to be in the workout room 10 minutes before training starts. You see the freshmen go running in there. The older guys will pull them over, and that's not how we do things. That's the last time you have to say it. You know, you don't have to tell the Navy SEALs how to maintain order in their in their squadrons. Okay, they take care of it on themselves. If I go to a Perry's or a Ruth Chris Steakhouse, an elite one, you don't have to put a list of rules out to your employees about how to source the material. They know how to do it. Okay, because there's a pride of being there. So as a leader, you have to instill pride. If you want to be that type of organization, you have to instill the pride and the respect for the standards of excellence that are required to perform at that level. If standards aren't that important to you and you're willing to have a revolving door of employees, give them rules. Show up at eight, leave at five, cook the fries, cook the burgers, take out the garbage. Okay. But what you're going to get is you're going to get lack of adherence. You're going to get lack of connection, lack of buy-in. If you want buy-in, they'll get people to believe in why they need to buy-in. And at Bama, the reason that they do it there so well is you want to be your best It's not for everybody. Okay. What's the Marines? Fear the proud, right? So that creates dissonance immediately, mentally. Am I not one of the few in the proud? Can I not do it? Oh, hell no. I'm going to do it. So the ones that sign up go into the Marines because they want to be pushed. They want that discipline and that challenge. Most people run from it, not those that are giving it that, I want to be on the top of that mountain. All right. You talked to me about addiction for a minute. I'm curious how you start to, I mean, I'm sure in football, there's addiction things. I'm sure in, in sports, there's addiction issues. Certainly in what I do, the fitness space, there's people that are addicted to food. There's people that are addicted to alcohol, people addicted to drugs. Yeah. I'm curious if you have any, again, approach where you suggest like, how do we get the, the thin end of the wedge in the door to start breaking that habit? The biggest challenge when it comes to addiction is when the addiction has a healthy behavior attached to it, right? 
people who are addicted to running, they usually get to it because they're doing something else and they become addicted to it. And it's a healthy behavior until it's not. You can become addicted to anything. Okay. There are some that are stronger to the brain, you know, cocaine and stuff like that, that work in the reward centers of the brain are really important. Image can be really important from an addiction standpoint because of social acceptance and the human connection that's associated with it. But, you know, I think from it comes to addiction is first, we have to realize that we're powerless to it. I am a massive fan of the AA model. Okay. The 12 step recovery process. It's not as effective in NA narcotics anonymous as it is alcohol anonymous. But people who walk the walk of recovery, and there's a lot of recovery models that have been built off of that that don't call themselves AA anymore, but you have to admit that you're powerless to it, and it's a daily journey, and it's a daily bite. One of my athletes has told me, he said, and it comes from a family member who's been through addiction their entire life, but, it, but makes the statement of, when you feel confident, that's when you should be yelling for help. Okay? That's a great, great adage for all of us. When we're getting confident in our world, we need to start begging for help because that's when we start getting risky. We were going up the mountain. You're a Canadian, so you, I'm going to make the generalization. You probably snow ski growing up. I didn't no, actually. Yeah, exactly. Hockey. Hockey. Okay. Hockey. Won't work here, but it, it go with it. So we're skiing in the mountains one day, and for day is just, it's an absolute blizzard condition. And we're skiing up with a ski patrol guy. And the ski patrol guy is talking, and I said, man, this has got to be a tough day. He's not a tough day at all. These are the easy days. Tomorrow, when it's clear, blue, sunny, and it's perfect snow, is the scary day because people lose discipline. Mm-hmm. So we have to be willing to ask for help and we have to have support around us, okay? The fact is that recovery from addiction is a relapsing process. We don't beat it the first time. We beat it multiple times. But when recovery is more important than what we get out of the drug, the behavior, that's when we can do it, okay? So, you know, I can justify all day long that one more drink's not going to kill me, okay? You know, one more cycle's not going to kill me. One more hookup with a hooker, if I'm a pro athlete, it's not going to kill me. Okay, I can recover from, but when losing my family and being shamed, but if I've been able to overcome my family and get my wife to stay with me, then the short-term draw of one more call girl or escort is not a problem for a pro athlete because, well, they're not going to leave. I'm powerful. When they actually leave and then they hit rock bottom and they realize I got a choice every day I have to make. And the choice is made in the moment. It's made like right now. Yes or no. That's it. It's not tomorrow. It's one day at a time. It's today or tomorrow. And I think that's where most people who are in recovery of whatever they're recovering from, they're the greatest bullshit callers of anybody that are treating. So you need somebody who's walked the walk and been there before because I haven't been in recovery. I don't have an addictive personality. Well, I could very easily, but I'm, you know, I've been scared since I was a kid because my mom's side has a tremendous family history of drug abuse. So when I had my hip replaced and, and I liked the way the pain pills felt, I told my wife as a nurse, get these away from me. And my dear friend is my physician. We always laugh when we go to dinner. I'm like, don't ever prescribe me OxyContin unless I have got open wounds because I can tell you right now, I like the way they feel, but I'm so afraid of them. But I can imagine what I would lose if I did it. So for me, I'm not going to venture out there, but I understand how we just get caught up. We just push the limit. And then what happens is the dragon gets bigger and stronger and, you know, the guilt that's associated with making a mistake. So we have to understand it's a lifelong process. We're going to make mistakes. I don't want to justify a a relapse, but I do want us to understand is that we can learn a lot during our relapses. One last question, actually, I want to kind of dig into you as a psychologist, how much you're looking at the actual implications of physiology on changing the brain. Tons. So my specialty was a aspect called behavioral medicine, which is the interplay between the physiology and the psychology. It's how medical conditions and psychological conditions interact. So biofeedback and stress management, 
core of what I do. But I've also, my expertise is in injury and stress on the body. We know the whole field of psychoneuroimmunology, which is the interplay between the psychological, the neurological, and the immunological aspects of our human body. When we're stressed, we're more asked to get sick. Our bodies can't fight. We have more killer cells going through our body that are looking for problems. And, you know, we, I'm not going to say that being a low stress environment prevents cancer. I'm not saying that, but what I am saying is that when we're under stress, we're more out for viruses, we're more out, our immune system is decreased. And I think that, you know, if I knock on what, if I was ever in one of those situations where I had a very low chance of survival from a cancer, I would be trying every Western or whatever part of the world we're comparing. I'd be trying a lot of alternative stuff because I do believe that there's some power. I mean, I don't think limes are going to cure tumors, but don't tell me I wouldn't be right, you know, because I've heard those things. But I do believe that stress management and being clear, you know, I want to treat my body like a temple. Right now, my temple is just kind of wide and thick, but I do want to treat it that way. And I want to maintain what goes into it and believe in what's there. And I think we have to see it as that. Any books you suggest for anyone interested in, in this? Maybe one of the first ones that come to mind is maybe having the greatest impact on you. I think John Kabat-Zinn's books are phenomenal. Full Catastrophe Living is absolutely fantastic. It's about mindfulness. He's a psychologist that works for Harvard, which at the time he was writing the books was shocking that people would, you know, Harvard was into mindfulness. But he he worked in the medical setting. And so he worked with people on on having an alternative. So anything from John Kabat-Zinn is just fantastic. You know, I think start there. Jack Canfield stuff is, is really good too. But, you know, I think the main thing is what we want to know is how do we, we got to understand that stress runs like the engines in our car, right? If the RPM is always up over in the eight and in the red, it's going to break down eventually. And we're constantly carrying a heavy load, our shocks and our struts and all the other facts that are going to break down too. We got to do general maintenance on us. We don't have to be stress-free. We can run through high periods of stress, but prolonged nature of minor stresses that build up to mimic major stressors will wear us down. Like, you know, I can break down this wall behind me by just running a drip of water every day. If I put a whole bunch of little drips of water, now I've got a major problem. As much as a flood, it's going to work out the erosion and erode the floorboard just as much as anything else. So we have to look at all those and we have to have a time and, and figure out, are we running in the red? And when we get away, I mean, if we're using drugs, alcohol, sex, things like that, we're really not recovering. We're replacing. But if we can find a way to reconnect ourselves even 15 minutes a day, 20 minutes a day, just to be present with ourselves and be aware of our thoughts and feelings without judgment, we can create a more flexible mindset. So good. So tell me about the Catalyst School. That's Yeah. So a couple months ago, we were talking about coaches being leaders, okay? Anybody who is responsible for the success of another being. We started talking. I was like, who really supports coaches? Nobody, right? Coaches are unbelievably stressed have more burdens and responsibilities than I've ever had before. It doesn't matter if you're a pro coach, college coach, high school coach, or a private skill coach, strength, conditioning, nutritional coach. It doesn't matter, right? Or business leader. I'm managing 10 people in my office, whatever. And so what we did is we put together this thing and said, wait, let's stop the, are they a coach? Are they a, no, they're catalysts. They're responsible for being the spark to lead other people to their own greatness, right? So let's give them a platform where they can come in on, on weekly calls. It's not recorded. I mean, it's recorded for future use, but it's not, each week I get on the call and we do a Zoom or whatever, the, we'd go to meeting and there'll be anywhere between 10 and 100 people on the call, okay? And I will answer questions and talk and think and we will dive in, okay? And it's based on different theories of what it means to be a catalyst. The number one core of being a catalyst is the connection to human people, okay? 
if you are connected to people, you can suck a little bit on the technique, but people know you care. Okay. Yeah. Number two, you got to know how to assess the people you work with. You don't treat everybody with the same approach. Okay. You got to know the T for because I spell things out. T is you got to know how to develop talent. The other A is you got to have accountability as yourself. Do you take care of yourself? The L is what kind of legacy do you want to leave? The Y is do you have your philosophy written down on how to train and lead and grow people? The S is you got to provide people a secure environment to be their spark. And the T is you got to take them to chaos. Okay. That's what a catalyst is. And so you have to understand the foundations that are there. And we priced it. I've had a lot of people came in and said, I cannot believe it's $20 a month. Like your hourly rate is significantly more than that. But my answer was I didn't want any coach to go, you know what? Because that's not where I make my money. I, I did it as a way to build a community. Sure. And the money's nice. But the $20 a month to me was there's no reason why somebody can't spend $20 a month. And if you're that broke, call me. I'll, I'll make you a deal. Okay. But in that deal, you got to give up your Starbucks coffee. Okay. Because you're paying $4 a day, five days a week. There's your $20. Go one week a month without drinking Starbucks and go to McDonald's and get a 99 cent coffee. Okay. Which will win every taste test there is. Okay. But that being said, or just brew your own damn coffee. Here's the deal. 20 bucks a month is, I mean, there's no other hook. There's no upsell. Okay. It's $20 a month. Yesterday we talked about stress, the stress burden that comes on coaches. And I've had four spouses text me already. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I am worried to death about my spouse, men and women that are freaking out, that are stressed. Look, I know what coaches, managers, I mean, I know I get the phone calls. That's what I do for a living. And so what we did is we took this and we brought it forward and it's literally a no brainer. You get seven days free right off the bat, which means you get access to everyone I've ever recorded. If you want to sign up for free, watch everyone I've ever done and then cancel after seven days. I won't charge you a thing. So great, man. So th thank you very much for one, providing this amazing information and for two, for the Catalyst School, because it sounds like something that, you know, right now, I think the whole world is shifting and we need people to to lead. We need people to guide and the entire personal training industry needs stuff like this to learn how to get into people's minds. So that's a market there that you didn't mention, but it's a huge one for you. Well, let's think about that real quick. You know, why do people come to personal training? Want to feel people, better. Yeah. And maybe emotionally. Yep. So usually emotionally, right? Yeah. They think looking better is the key, but in reality, movement is important, but I think it's just, that I just want to feel better. So, so I will tell you this, just, so the stress thing I wrote, so I closed my office a month ago. We're in a rental house right now because we're building a house where we're going to have our new office. But in the eight years I owned the office, I gained over 50 pounds. Okay. And because I didn't have time and there were days I really didn't have time, but it wasn't that I was tired. I was worn out, but I also didn't want to make the investment. So a month ago, my wife sat down with me and said, look, I'm really worried about you. Okay. I'm worried about our kids. I'm worried about what you're going to do. You got to make a choice. So we moved back in here and she says, we are going to build. And I'm like, oh, whatever. Okay, fine. Whatever. Okay. I've had a Peloton for a year and a half and we've got a Peloton treadmill, which is also awesome, but it's sitting in storage because we're in the storage house. But we're sitting there talking and, and I told her the other day, I said, you know what? I, I said, thank you. And she gave me a bet to lose 50 pounds. And it was, it's got a huge reward to it for me. And it's something that I really want to do. And I'm having a lot of fun with it. But I told her the other day, I said, I know you did that for that reason. I said, that isn't it. I said, the pride I feel when I do it every day, that I actually can't wait to do it again because I'm breaking my own barriers. It's not about the reward. Thank you for starting. I said, I still want it. It's right here. It's what I'm seeing for myself. And I didn't train today because I was, my legs are exhausted. But, you know, it was one of those things where I'm trying to win as many days as I can it's really not even about the 50 pounds. Like that's just a byproduct at this point. I've been this way, you know, for eight years. It's not, I'm not expecting it to change overnight, 
But what I'm feeling in here, I'm sleeping better, I'm feeling better, and I'm more prideful when I look in the mirror. That matters to me. Yeah, you get it. It's the little stuff, right? It, it, yeah. It's, you know, walking instead of driving. It's, it's you know, making that one decision at a time. Yeah. And it's it's literally the other night I came home. It was a Friday night. Played golf that morning. Had a couple of drinks. So I played golf. Hung out here, watched a couple of shows. And we had a dinner reservation at 630. And at 6 o'clock at 545, I got up to go to the bathroom. And I put on my workout shorts. And I was like, I am going to get a workout in before we go to dinner. And I got on. I had 15 minutes to do a workout to take a shower and be in the car. And I can shower in like five minutes because I used to shower with 35 guys after practice every day. You showered fast, right? And so I got on, I found a 10 minute workout that was a high intensity burn and I did it. And I got off and we went to dinner that night and I was so proud of myself. Instead of choosing one, I chose the the harder route. That's it. It's just the baby stuff. Baby That's steps. the baby. It was 10 minutes. It sucked. Yeah. It was brutal. It was awful. And she said that. She's like, you only got 10 minutes, so I'm going to kill you. She did. It was terrible. It was miserable. It was it was awful. But when I sat down for dinner and had my tuna, I was like, this tastes so good because I earned it. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the pride that I had. Dr. McCabe, thank you so much. Uh, I'm truly grateful for your time. Thank you very much. That's a wrap for today, ladies and gents. Thank you so much for tuning into the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. We do not take your time and attention for granted. We're so grateful that you're here. My conversation with Brett today was absolutely outstanding, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you're someone who's interested in this type of stuff, I highly suggest you check out Brett's Catalyst School. He's also got his own podcast called The Secrets to Winning. His sports psychology company is called Mindside, M-I-N-D. S-I-D-E, mind, side. And I know he would enjoy if you guys reach out to him and maybe ask him some questions or maybe consume some of his podcasts because he's, he's doing a great job and he's got so much passion for what he does, but he's absolute wealth of information. So thank you all for listening to the podcast. And one more shout out to our sponsor, Bubs, for making the show possible. Guys, I hope you take everything you learn every day and apply it to your life and realize that reading the book is not the goal, right? It's the application. So show that you've learned something and apply it to your life. And an application to your life can sometimes be the hardest part, right? A lot of us read books, a lot of us listen to podcasts, and we're always aspiring to be our greatest self. Yet applying it to life is the test. Life is the test. You know, are you actually learning? Are you actually improving? And I think the greatest awareness to have is that in that moment, in any moment, in this moment, you have the opportunity to choose what you do, what you think, and and, and ultimately how you perceive anything. And I hope you empower yourself with that realization that everything in your life right now is your choice. It's your creation and we can change it for the better every single day, including our body, including our mind, including our financial situations, we can step up and take control if you're willing to accept complete ownership over your body, over your mind, over your life, over your relationships. You are the creator and we can change it. You are not a victim to anything. You are not a victim to anyone. Take control right now and let's step up together and live our greatest life. Thank you guys all very much for being here. This is the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you're not already subscribed on iTunes and leave us a review because we think you're awesome and we want to know that you think we're awesome. (laughs) Have a great day, guys. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. 
This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Pikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.